So I was sitting there waiting to come up. I, I thought of a new ending, or a new beginning, rather, uh, for my sermon. Spur of the moment. Really not usually a very good idea, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> Man of black is clinging to the side of the cliff. Inigo Montoya standing on the top of the cliff, looking down. It says, do not suppose you could uh, speed things up. I go through various proposals and the man in black says, I'm afraid you'll just have to wait. To which Nico Matoya responds, I hate waiting. We do hate waiting, don't we? I mean, waiting means what? Waiting means we don't have what we want now. It's in the future. It's not ours yet. We're in a season right now that focuses on waiting. Second Sunday of Advent this morning, the season in which the church remembers, first of all, remembers the waiting of God's people for that first coming of Christ. But also a season in which the church reflects upon its own waiting now, our waiting again for that second coming of Christ What's the point of Messiah's coming? What was it really in substance that the people were waiting for? What were they looking forward to? Well, in so many passages that talk about the coming of Messiah, you can see the close connection with Messiah's coming and God's people's deliverance from their enemies, deliverance from their oppressors. Why did they hate waiting? Because they were waiting in suffering. They were waiting in oppression. And they were waiting for someone to come who was going to free them, to deliver them from that oppression. Waiting for such deliverance is one of the main themes of our text this morning, of Psalm 25. It's uh, tied with Psalm 37 and a number of times this whole idea of waiting for the Lord, waiting for the Lord comes about. You see this in verse 3, you see it in verse 4, you see it in verse 16. But you also hear it and feel it through the whole course of the psalm. This is someone who is waiting for God to do something that he is not yet doing and that he wants him to. And that is to deliver him from his enemies. Tradition tells us that this is a psalm of David. And so to help us understand where David is coming from and what's happening, we, we look at David's history, we look at his life, and we ask the first question, who were, who were David's enemies? Well, there's no shortage of David's enemies as we read David's life story. At different times, David's enemies were Saul, the king, sometimes the Philistines. Even after his ascension to the throne, Other nations around Israel were his enemies. And at one point, even out of his own household, came an oppressor, one from whom he had to flee from his own son, Absalom. And what kind of waiting did David engage in when he was confronted with these enemies? I think it's important to say first that if you look at David's life, David's waiting did not mean inactivity. David didn't just sit passively by. 
He fled from Saul. He fled from Absalom. He organized military campaigns when it was necessary to do so. If sitting inactively is not what David means by waiting, what is it? I think we get the essence of David's waiting as we look at verses 1 and 2. David says, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. First, David's waiting looked like trust, in trusting himself to God, resolving to accept whatever it was that God would bring his way in the meantime, resolving to wait as long as it took for God to act. David's waiting was a waiting of trust, where he handed his whole soul and life up to God and said, this is yours to do with what you see best. It's this kind of waiting, waiting in trust, that David believes will eventually lead to his desired end, that deliverance from his enemies which he's awaiting. He says in the last half of verse 2, Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Let not my enemies rejoice at me. Literally. Now, why does David believe that this kind of waiting, with this kind of lifting up of his soul, and this kind of trust, why does he believe that this will yield the desired end? Because as he says in verse 3, he says, Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. David is not here describing some unique outcome for himself. David is himself bolstered in his own faith by his recognition and his remembrance of the fact that God does not let his people be put to shame by their enemies. He's drawing on this source of confidence. The source of confidence that we too, all of these ages later, can cling to ourselves. By contrast, he says, the second half of verse 3, They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. And I think here that we're helped in our understanding even more about what it means to wait for the Lord by considering what the opposite looks like. And for this purpose in David's life and in the story of his life, we have a foil in Saul. We have Saul, the one that did not wait for the Lord. In fact, the very first way in which Saul gets crosswise with the Lord is where he took upon himself to sacrifice something that was not part of his right or responsibility as a king. Samuel was supposed to come. Samuel didn't show up. Saul said, I need to do it now. And he didn't wait. We see Saul taking the same approach to matters Throughout his reign, taking matters into his own hands, sinfully and unjustly putting people to death who were standing in his way. And even at the very end of his life, as he's calling on the Lord and he's not hearing from the Lord, instead of waiting, instead of repenting, seeking out a witch to bring up a spirit. This is the opposite of the kind of waiting that David's talking about. The waiting that David's talking about, this lifting up of ourselves, this trust, this is something that is not natural to us. It's much more difficult 
for us to rely on things we can't see with our own eyes or sense with our own senses. It's much more of a temptation for us to say, I know this is a shortcut, and I know this isn't precisely faithful, but boy, it really seems like it will be effective, and I don't know how this result will come about any other way. Waiting for the Lord in the way that David's describing here is something that, as he acknowledges, the Lord must himself teach us to do. He asks for this in verse 4. He says, make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. I think there's a reinforcing relationship here. David is asking God to teach him how to wait. And in that waiting, God is teaching David. Teaching him even more thoroughly how to faithfully and trustingly and righteously wait for God to act. David was able to wait for the Lord in this proper way because he was taught by God to do so and because he asked God to teach him to do so. People of God, this is something that we all need. We need to trust and wait like David and we need to be taught by God to do so and we need to, like David, be asking God, God, help us through this unnatural thing that you're calling us to do. Not taking matters into our own hands but waiting for you to act. Now, why else is it hard for us to wait? Sometimes it's hard for us to wait because we're concerned that the person upon whom we're relying might forget. Someone makes us a promise, our parents or our teachers or somebody for whom we work makes us a promise. And we can wait, but there's this fear. That person might forget. That person might not be able to follow through. They might not even remember. David can trust and wait and lift up his soul to God because he knows that God is one who doesn't forget. God, verse 6 says, remembers. David calls upon him, remember your mercy. O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. We can wait patiently, and we can wait dependently upon the Lord to hear our prayers for deliverance because of our confidence that He is a God who doesn't forget. He remembers. And it's not just that He remembers that's important, it's what He remembers. And as David calls upon God here, what's important that God remembers is not something about us. Not our faithfulness, not our righteousness, not our worthiness to be delivered from whatever it is we're waiting deliverance. What God remembers is something about himself. He remembers his mercy. He remembers his steadfast love. Why is this where we want God's memory to go rather than about us? We see in verse 7. Because David knows if God is thinking about him and remembering him, what he has to remember there is not helpful. Remember, David says, not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. On the tail end of asking God to remember, David's asking God to forget. Forget my sins. Forget my failures. Forget my weaknesses and remember what you have done. I think here that we're encountering a central point to this psalm. A central point about 
waiting for God to act on our behalf. David here expresses clearly that he has an expectation of being heard, but it's not because of his sinlessness. He has an expectation that he will be kept from shame, but it's not because he hasn't done that for which he ought to be ashamed. But even so, even as he's asking God to overlook who he is and what he's done and his worthiness, he's still able to ask and expect confidently God's help. Because in addition to what God is asked to remember and what God is asked not to remember, David is asking God to remember in a certain way how God is asked to remember. Second half of verse 7. Remember according to your steadfast love. Remember me for the sake of your goodness. David is again turning God's attention back to on who God knows himself to be. A God that has steadfast love and mercy. And that is good. And acts out of that goodness. And David knows that it's for the sake of God's goodness that he will act. He knows that it's on account of God's own glory that he can be moved by the prayers of his people. And he knows that God's goodness and God's steadfast love is revealed and highlighted and magnified and made more attractive and beautiful because it's poured out upon those who do not deserve it. God's steadfast love is merciful. And so, as David says in verse 8, good and upright is the Lord. We might expect, therefore, he saves the upright. But he doesn't. He says, therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. This is something at the core of who God is that we need to learn and we need to be encouraged by. God shows his steadfast love by loving you when you don't deserve it, which is all the time. And our waiting and our expectation and our confidence that God will hear us and God will not ultimately let us be put to shame can be anchored in that truth. God's goodness is hope for sinners. But what kind of sinners? Sinners to whom God has taught humility. Verse 9. He, God, leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. And why would humility be so important here? Humility is the exact opposite of our thinking and claiming that we have a right to God's deliverance. Humility is recognizing we have no right to this. We must lower ourselves before God if we're to receive his deliverance. And so I want us to see that even humility, this is closely wrapped up in this idea of what it means to wait for the Lord. We wait for the Lord by not taking matters into our own hands and doing things our own way. We wait for the Lord by acknowledging that it's not because of our righteousness and our goodness that we have a right to expect him to act. 
And we do that in humility, forsaking any notion that we have earned his protection, that we've earned our vindication, and instead teaching us to rely upon his ways and his paths. Verse 10, all of the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. And for whom? For those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. Okay, maybe there's this check in our mind again then. Uh, is it, is it, are we back to the idea here of our expecting deliverance because we have faithfully kept God's covenant, because we are innocent, because we have kept ourselves from failing? Or maybe, maybe David here is talking about the people who have only failed a little bit. But David disabuses us of that notion in verse 11 when he talks about himself. And he says, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. David's not here saying, God, I've mostly kept your covenant. I've mostly kept your commands. David knows he's mostly not. His guilt is great. It's not because of the smallness of David's failure. It's not because of the smallness of your failures that you can confidently appeal to God and ask him for help and wait for him to help. David's failure is large. What do we see here? We see that the covenant can be counted as having been kept even by those with great guilt. Do we need this encouragement? I think we do. What then does David mean here by keeping this covenant? I think David is here referring to everything we've seen him describing so far. Keeping God's covenant means lifting up our souls to God. It means trusting in him. It means waiting for him. It means listening to and learning from him. It means repenting of our sins. It means humbling ourselves before him. Waiting for the Lord like this. This is what it means to keep God's covenant. Another way of summarizing it, to keep God's covenant is to fear the Lord. David goes into this direction in verse 12. Who is the man who fears the Lord? It's the man we've just been describing, the one who acknowledges, understands his own sin, but confidently, nonetheless, depends upon God and God's promises to deliver him from those consequences. What is done for the man who waits for the Lord? What is the basis of David's confidence? Look at the promised blessings in 12 and 13 and 14. They're staggering. Him, this one who fears the Lord in this way. Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. Additional insight, additional teaching, additional growth in our understanding of God's ways for us. Verse 13, his soul shall abide in well-being and his offspring shall inherit the land. Most staggering of all, perhaps, is what we see in verse 14. The ESV renders it, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. It's literally the secret of the Lord. The picture here is of our being brought into God's own secret counsel, having this close, personal relationship with God. Those who fear the Lord, this is the outcome. They are invited into the secret counsel of the Lord, and God, it says, makes known to them his covenant. Listen to these blessings again, instruction in the right way. 
guidance through our lives, the well-being of our soul, generational inheritance of God's world and the friendship and the close counsel of the Lord. These are the blessings of the covenant that God teaches are there for those who fear him. This is what awaits those who wait for God, even for those who wait needing to repent of great guilt. And it's on this basis, again, not of his own sinlessness, not on the, result, on, the, on the basis of his own guiltlessness, but it's on the basis of this covenant that David has his confidence. He'll be rescued from his enemies. Looking at verse 15 as he's expressing this confidence, my eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. And it's on the basis of this confidence that he can cry out, He can set his trouble in its full ugliness before the Lord. And he can renew his plea. Listen again to what he says, beginning with verse 16. And listening again in light of everything that we've heard so far as he sort of repeats what he's been asking. He says, turn to me, be gracious to me, for I'm lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble. Forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame. There it is again. For I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me. For I wait for you. People of God, this is the prayer that God hears. This is the prayer to which God responds. And we're reminded one final time at the end of the psalm that this is not only for David. David then turns this prayer outward. And asks the same thing for all of God's people. Verse 22. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all of his troubles. This approach to waiting, this kind of waiting, this is what is recommended and commended to God's people as a whole. Through history, as God's people were waiting, this deliverance, from the nations that were around them, the nations that were oppressing them. And particularly and especially as they were waiting for this anointed one through whom all of this deliverance would be granted. This is the call to all of God's people as they're waiting for Messiah to act for them. All of them are called to exhibit this trust, this repentance, this teachability, this humility, and this fear as they wait for the mercy that God had promised. But perhaps some questions arose in our minds as we were looking through this, at what God has promised and how this waiting works. How did it all work? How were all of these things possible? And this question in particular, how could God give rescue and how could God give blessing to those who didn't deserve them? How can God, as Paul says centuries later in Romans, justify the ungodly and still himself be just? Well, the answer to this question is presented in the one for whom God's people were waiting. This anointed one, this Messiah for whom they waited, this son of David, he would come. And his life would in many ways parallel the life of David. This son of David would come. And when he came, one of these parallels would be that 
He, Messiah, like his father David, he would be threatened by enemies. He would be surrounded by those who sought to oppress him. He would be placed in a situation where he had to lift up his soul, where he, as Hebrews said, had to trust in his father. Messiah himself would have to wait for the Lord. But most unlike David, and most unlike any of the rest of us, when David waited, when Jesus rather waited and relied upon the mercy and the steadfast love of the Lord, he was not relying on that mercy because of the sins of his youth. He was not relying on the Father's mercy because of his own transgressions. The author of Hebrews tells us, and we see from the whole of Scripture, that he came to this spot. He came to this threat. He came to this oppression. He came to this situation where he had to wait through no sin of his own. He had no sin of his own. David's asking to be taught God's ways. Messiah perfectly knew and perfectly kept God's ways. He did not need to be taught the truths of waiting for the Lord. He did not need to be taught the ways and the paths and the truth of the Lord. He was himself the way and the truth and the life. But there would be another difference between the son of David and David himself. Not only... Would the son of David be placed in this position completely apart from his own sin? His waiting and his trusting would have a dramatically different outcome than David's. Because for a time, in fact, David's, Christ's enemies rather, were actually allowed to Put him to shame, to treat him shamefully, as he says in the Gospels himself, predicting to subject him even to the shame of the cross. The shame which the author of Hebrews says he spurned, basically accepted it, took it upon himself, and even got to the place where his enemies, as Jesus himself told his disciples, I will be gone and my enemies will rejoice, they will exult. Over me. The son of David would not be rescued from death. Death would take him. How can this be? Why would this be? Why, if Christ, who shouldn't even have been placed in a position where he had to wait for God's enemies because he was sinless, why did Christ, even though he took on this waiting, waited perfectly? Why was he nevertheless put to shame by his enemies in this way? Why would, ways, why would things turn out for Jesus in a way that seems so contrary to what David would lead us to expect when he says, no one who waits for the Lord will be put to shame? The answer to that, in sum, is because this was the incarnation of the Lord's mercy from of old. This mercy that was embodied in this Son of God who was born of a woman who came into the world 
This mercy led him to submit to death, a death in which he himself took upon his own shoulders the sins of David's youth and David's transgressions and the sins of your youth and the sins of your old age and the sins of every phase of your life and the sins of everyone who would trust in him in this way. The embodied, incarnated mercy of the Lord came and subjected himself to an outcome that he did not deserve, which was death. And why was he doing that? Because he was taking upon himself the death that David and you and everyone who has sinned, which is everyone but Christ, has earned. This is the purpose then in Jesus' death. This is why this principle seems to be violated. Here's someone who trusted perfectly in the Lord and his enemies put him to shame. Jesus' death is the first thing that makes it possible for sinners to fruitfully, like David, wait for the Lord. There's another thing, because we know, as different as this outcome seemed to have been on the front end, death was not the end for Christ. As Peter says, it was not possible for death to hold him. And so after three days, these first appearances of this shame are overthrown. And it was revealed that the shame to which he had been put was only temporary and it was only apparent and instead he's raised and vindicated and he's set at God's right hand where scripture tells us he has been placed over all his enemies and Colossians says even specifically he has put them to open shame in his resurrection and his ascension and just as Jesus paid for sins he didn't commit just as Jesus took on himself shame that he didn't deserve he also lets us share in the victory and the vindication that we didn't earn. Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection's, je- resurrection is why waiting for the Lord works, even for those of us who do not deserve deliverance. By his death, by his resurrection, God's covenant with his people was established. This covenant that David mentions twice here in this psalm. The same covenant to which David looked forward. This covenant by which sinners can be saved and rescued from their enemies. And now we come full circle. And we address this question. Advent makes sense as we're considering the waiting of God's people in the past. But what we're waiting for, the remembering... The the waiting that we're remembering during Advent was something that has already been accomplished. Jesus has come. Jesus was made flesh. Jesus did accomplish by his death and by his resurrection all of the deliverance toward which the prophets looked. How then do we fit into this same picture? Well, Scripture makes it clear to us that we still have enemies. Even now, after this first coming of Christ, Christ has been enthroned above all his enemies above all our enemies but he has not yet destroyed them powers of sin powers of Satan powers of the ungodly world all the heavenly powers that are opposed to the church have not yet been destroyed additionally all of the means that Satan uses 
to try to keep us from the, improm- the promised inheritance. That list, list there in Romans 8, famine and sword and persecution and death itself, everything that would threaten to prevent us from inheriting God's blessing that he's promised in his covenant. All of those things are still there. All of those things are still attempting to take us out. Satan continues to roam as a ravaging lion seeking to devour us. How then do we wait? How do we keep from getting put to shame by these enemies? David's pattern of waiting is a pattern for us. We too wait. Do we wait in inactivity? We don't. We resist. We fight. We labor. But we do all of these things with the same kind of waiting that the saints of old engaged in. And in the same manner that David here teaches us to wait. We wait, first of all, by not using our own means. So many times we're faced with the temptation to make shortcuts from God's faithfulness. To do things that we know God has not told us to do. Or do things that God has told us not to do. Because it seems like that's the way to fix this particular problem in front of us. But David's waiting shows us that we can wait for God to act and that we need not and we must not take matters into our own hands sinfully. Rather, again, we wait. We don't resolve that relational difficulty by speaking wickedly about that person. We don't resolve that financial difficulty by being dishonest on what we report. We don't resolve that difficulty of our being alone by taking up with people that we shouldn't be with. We wait. We wait, trusting in God, lifting up our souls to God, turning away from treachery, asking God to make his ways known to us, repenting of our sins, humbly fearing God with our eyes turned toward God, laying our distress before him because this is another aspect of the incarnation. When Christ became flesh and took on our weakness and subjected himself to the same temptations that we face, This is one difference that we have now that the people of old did not have. We have an advocate who knows exactly what it's like to suffer like you're doing. And so when we lay our distress before the Lord in detail, when we tell him what our hearts feel like, when we tell him how impossible the circumstances look, when we tell him how tempting it is for us to take matters in our own hands, we're speaking to someone who understands exactly where we're coming from but without sin. Why will our waiting work? Our waiting will work because of what we've already said, that Jesus has died to pay for our sins. He has risen to give us a share in his victory. But there's one more reason. Something else to think about during this period of Advent while we are waiting is that we know that we're not waiting alone. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is waiting with you. Why do I say that? Hebrews ten twelve. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting 
from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Jesus is still waiting. He is waiting perfectly. The ideal of waiting that David has presented to us in Psalm 25, Christ is fulfilling without error. He is waiting faithfully. He is waiting with his trust in his Father. He is waiting righteously and He is waiting for the perfect resolution. That waiting, that waiting will come to an end. This is what we wait for. This is what we remember during this time. Our present period of difficulty and oppression is going to end. The passage that we read for the first scripture reading, 1 Corinthians 15, he must reign until He has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And listen, with that last enemy of his destroyed will be the last of ours. Wait for the Lord, people of God. None who wait for him will be put to shame. Let us pray.